Well, <laughs> well, good morning, everyone. My name is Josh. I'm the, the minister here at Alliance Christian Church. I invite you to join with me before we get into God's Word in prayer. Father God, we're so grateful for your Word. We're so thankful that you've given it to us, that you've, that you've allowed us to study it, that you've allowed us to come here together and talk about it and discuss it and apply it to your lives. God, I just ask as we're going through your word today and studying it, we just ask that you would help us to find the courage and the wisdom to put it into practice in our lives. God, I ask that you would be with me. I ask that you would help my words to be clear and concise so that those who are listening will hear not what I have to say, not your will, but your word properly explained. And most of all, we thank you for your son Jesus and his sacrifice. And in his name we pray. And the church said, all right. So, we're on week, uh, whatever it is, I forget, uh, on the book of Philippians. Is it week three, four, five? We're, we're getting in there. Um, I don't know if you guys have noticed, but Virginia has been picking out songs that match with the scripture that we're reading every week, um, which is a really big feat because I'm not staying on a schedule. And so I would imagine it's very difficult for her um, to know just how far we're going to get. Because what we're doing is we're looking at the book of Philippians with a microscope, verse by verse, and really just getting into it and trying to understand it very slowly. So there's no timeline on what we're going to finish. We're going to get done when we're done, and that's just going to have to be okay. So if you have your Bibles, we're into chapter 2 today, excitingly. I invite you to join with me in Philippians chapter 2. And I just want to jump in and read the first couple of verses here. Paul says, Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort provided by love, any fellowship in the Spirit, any affection or mercy, complete my joy and be of the same mind by having the same love, being united in Spirit, and having one purpose. So as we're reading this text, this is the downfall of looking at the text with the microscope so closely is sometimes you have a tendency to maybe miss the forest for the trees. When you're so zoomed in on one verse, it's helpful to stop, back up, and remember the big picture of the letter here. So when Paul says, therefore, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort, the first thing we should ask, rather than just try and read this verse in isolation, is, What's he talking about? Why would they be needing comfort? Why would they be anxious? Um, what we know from chapter 1 is, is, is there was some anxiety going on from the fact that Paul was in prison. They were worried about him. They were concerned about him. And then at the end, in, in verse 29 and 30, we understand that they were going through some kind of trial. Paul says, and granted to you, this is verse 29, chapter 1, it's been granted to you not only to believe in Christ, but also to suffer him, since you are encountering the same conflict that you saw me face, and now here that I am facing. So they're going through something, and he's trying to give them encouragement. If you remember last week, or, or if, you've, if you've studied this book a little bit, we talked about how Philippi is very Roman. Roman to the core, it's a Roman city. 
Part of the reason that they were so Roman and their identity was rooted in Rome was because of the fact that in, in about 42 BC, there was this big civil war in Rome. If you're familiar, you know, Julius Caesar gets stabbed on the Senate floor, you guys, et tu, Brute, right? Well, the fallout of all of that was there was the people who were in line with Caesar, and there were the people who were in line with Brutus, and they got into this big civil war. And the major deciding battle that united Rome happened in the, the city of Philippi. So Brutus, the same guy, et tu, Brute, was one of the generals. He lost... The general of the winning side, Mark Antony, when the battle was over, they were like, good, the war's over, we don't need to fight anymore. So he turned to his armies and said, you guys can retire now. The war's over. And so on the spot, a vast majority of Mark Antony's legions took up houses and settled in Philippi. And so the reason Philippi was so Roman, the reason I keep hitting on this, is the, the majority of the citizens in Philippi were old vets, old Roman soldiers who had served loyally to the cause of Caesar. Now in Rome, it was expected of you when the emperor comes by, comes into your city, when one of the Caesars come by, for you to bow down and bend the knee, not just to the Roman gods and the Roman idols, but also to Caesar himself. Because he wasn't just an emperor in their eyes. He was a god, lowercase g, god. They actually, Emperor Nero actually believed that he was directly descended from the Roman god Heracles. And if that name sounds familiar, it's because the Romans stole their gods from the Greeks. The Greek version of that god was Hercules. Half God, half man, son of Zeus, he displayed his might and power on the earth. That Hercules was the one that the Roman emperors thought, he's my great, 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 great grandfather, so some of that divinity has come into me. Well, as Roman Christians, as followers of Christ, they're not going to bend the knee to Caesar. They're not going to bow down and worship that he is Lord over them. They're just not. But at the same time, there was pressure from the Jewish side of things. Because there, there just happened to be one ethnic group in all of Rome who was exempt from having to bend the knee and bow down and worship Caesar. That one little ethnic group that was exempt was the Jews. And so early on in the history of the church, put yourself in, in Caesar's position. He doesn't know the difference between a Jew and a Christian and, and a Pharisee and a Sadducee. They don't care. They're all just Jews. This worked out great for the early church. They were just a sect of Judaism. They were a denomination of Judaism. And so they weren't compelled to worship the Roman gods. A few weeks ago, when we read the book of Acts, we talked about these certain men from Judea who came and insisted that the Gentile Christians become circumcised. And what the church decided was, no, you're not required to be circumcised. You're not required to follow kosher. You're not required to follow the law of Moses to be saved. You're saved through Christ. Well, here's the deal. This is why this is all important. At a certain point, you're not ethnically Jewish. You're not circumcised. You're not eating kosher. You're not submitting to all 613 laws of Moses. At a certain point, you don't get to keep calling yourself Jewish. 
At a certain point, you become a new thing. At a certain point, all of the rest of the Jews, when, when they come along and, and want you to bow down to Caesar, and you say, no, 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 it's okay, I'm Jewish, all the rest of the Jews are going to be like, no, you're not. You're not with us. You're not doing our thing. Remember that exemption? Well, now that exemption's gone. If you're not Jewish, then you've got to bend the knee to Caesar. And so there was this pressure in the early church. Christians were pressured from either side to either go with Caesar and bend the knee and confess Caesar as Lord, or to go the Jewish route and say, well, I'll just do the Jewish thing and get circumcised and follow the law of Moses and do that, which is antithetical to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in fact, this, this pressure comes up a little later in chapter 3 when we get there. But that's, that's the background behind the church in Philippi and why they were struggling the way they were, why Paul in the end of chapter 1 describes it like they're fighting in an arena. And he's, he's trying to tell them, stand firm in the gospel, stand in the fight, be united in Christ. That's where we are in this struggle that they need encouragement. Paul says, if there's any encouragement in Christ... Any comfort by love, any fellowship in the Spirit, any affection or mercy. In other words, if through all of this pressure to bend the knee and confess Caesar as Lord, or to bend the knee and confess the law of Moses as Lord, if Jesus provides you any semblance of comfort during this, and he should, Paul says, complete my joy. Be of the same mind, having the same love, being united in spirit, and having one purpose. Again, if we're trying to get the whole letter in perspective, he's calling back to what he said in chapter 1, verse 3, where he says, I thank my God every time I remember you. I always pray with joy in my every prayer because of your participation, that's a unity word, your fellowship together in the gospel. Be united, have the same mind, same love. United in spirit, one purpose. Your Bible there, where it says one purpose, your Bible might say one mind. It might say one purpose. They're about split, 50-50. The actual word there is mind. Be of one mind. But the reason a lot of Bibles will say purpose is because the idea is not just we all think the same thing. Or we all agree and we all come to a conclusion, but it's that we all are thinking together as a unit. Almost like you see, um, you know, those, those ants on the National Geographic channel, that they all kind of just work together seamlessly as if they were all guided by one mind. That's the kind of unity Paul is trying to get in the church. And unity is something that you can get. You can achieve unity in, in several different ways. Think about this. In our modern culture, in the year 2023, the way we achieve unity is by allowing our own selfish ambitions to sort of play off of one another and push off of one another. And that's capitalism in a nutshell. That's our political system in a nutshell. You've got the Democrats, and they want one thing, and the Republicans, and they want another thing. And you vote for your guy, and I'll vote for my guy, and we all kind of just push back and forth and forth until eventually we find a compromise in the middle. But we're all guided by what we want, and the system is rigged to help us kind of sort of maybe get a compromise. That's how unity is achieved in the modern sense. 
In the ancient world, it was kind of the opposite. Unity in the ancient world was achieved through monarchy, through dictatorship. We're all united because Caesar just tells us what to do and what to think and how to worship, and we all fall in line or else we're going to get put to the sword. That's technically unity. We may not like it, but ancient unity, unity under Rome was, if you bend the knee to me, then we'll all be united under me, Lord Caesar. How does Paul describe unity? How does God describe what Christian unity looks like? In verse 4, he says, Each of you should be concerned not only about your own interests, but about the interests of others as well. That's a whole different ballgame, isn't it? Your unity is that each person is putting the other person first to the point where we're just all of the same mind. We all just want what's best for the other person. You'll be at like a four-way stop here in Nebraska or like anywhere in the Midwest, and you get there at the same time, and one person, oh, you go. And then they're like, no, 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 I insist you go. No, 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 it's fine, you go, it's you go. First of all, don't, this doesn't apply to traffic, just go if you get there first. But that's the idea of Christian unity. Let's just do what you want to do. No, 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 I insist. Let's just do what you want to do. No, 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 I insist. I want to do what you want to do. Verse 5, he says, You should have the same attitude towards one another that Christ Jesus had. And as we get into verses 6 through 11, he's going to describe what that attitude looks like. And I want to read verses 6 through 11 through two different lenses today. First thing, we're going to step back a little bit from our letter of Philippians. Why? This is this famous passage of Scripture. I know you've heard it quoted multiple times. And what most scholars believe, most students of the Bible believe, is that this is not actually original to Paul himself. What I mean by that is, is based on the language and the types of words that use it, it's not, it's not something that Paul came up with. It was, a, it was a hymn or a song or something that the church had sung or, or did beforehand that Paul was quoting. We, we're fairly certain of that because, if, number one, if you look at it structurally, it, it's a poem. It's got stanzas and lines and it has a little bit of rhythm to it. Um, and number two, it, it uses p- words that Paul never uses, and it, it phrases its sentences in a way that all of the rest of Paul's letters, he doesn't talk like that. If, you're, if you've ever had a chance to like grade papers or read people's writings, after a while you can tell which student is which just based on their writing style. We can do that with Paul. We have enough of his writings that we can read it and study it and be like, hmm, this just doesn't sound like Paul. So based on that, most people are, are fairly certain that what this is is Paul's some sort of hymn or song or poem that he's quoting to the church. And so what I want to do is I want to look at this passage as a complete unit in isolation, as, as a hymn, as a poem, and look at what it has to say. And then I want to talk about how Paul is using this hymn or poem in his letter. So I want to read the whole thing. Starting in verse 6, it says... 
We'll back up. It says, have the same attitude as Christ who had, and this is where the poem starts, who though he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking on the form of a slave, by looking like other men, and by sharing in their human nature. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. As a result, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Though he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God as something to be grasped. This is, I want to talk about this verse. It might upset you, but I want us to talk through this verse. Um, Paul says, or the, the hymn says, God says, the Holy Spirit says, Jesus existed in the form of God, the morphe of God, the, the shape, the image of God. This is one of those verses that can be really tricky when we read it. We, we have this thing in Christianity we call the Trinity, this way that we describe God and we describe Jesus. And over the past 2,000 years, we've come up with very precise, careful language of how we describe Jesus and his relationship to the Father. It's fully God, fully man, not part God, not, not an, an image of God, not a shadow of God, but fully God. He didn't merely look like a man. He didn't merely look like God, but he was God. He is God. Here's the problem. is this: When you look at this text, it says he existed in the form of God. In the shape. The word literally means shape or image or statue of God. And if you took that verse and you compared it to all of our proper, precise doctrine that we are allowed to describe Jesus as, it, it actually, it doesn't fit. Now, no, stay with me here, please. Because it does absolutely say that he was God, because it says he's equal with God. He is equal in nature with God, but if we're just looking at language, if we're looking at the way that theologically we're allowed to describe Jesus, oh, this gives us some little bit of stomachache. So the way we reconcile this, there, there are people who will go to the one extreme and say, aha, that's it, Jesus wasn't actually God, I disregard all of that, we're going to throw it all out and redo things. That's extreme, don't do that. Because it, it's unhelpful, it's extreme, and it fails to take into account the way the entire Bible describes Jesus. Because if you read John, if you read other parts of Scripture, and you put all of the things that they say about Jesus, we will come to the conclusion that Jesus is fully God, and he was fully man, and he's fully in union with the Father, and all of those properly approved theological doctrines. But I think what we can understand from this verse is, we have 2,000 years of church history and pressure on our shoulders to precisely describe who Jesus is in the exact right words. Um, and I don't think that the early church felt that pressure. 
So like, I'm even a little bit nervous, nervous talking about this because I'm trying to explain the text and I'm worried that, oh, what if I, I don't quite use the right words to describe who Jesus is. Is everybody going to hate me? Am I going to get fired? That's the pressure we have in the church today. And I think that the early church was free to just describe God in this beautiful poem and describe Jesus. Said, yeah, he existed in the shape of God. He was equal with God, but then he took on the shape of a man. And like, maybe it doesn't fit the little box that we try to put Jesus in. The early church knew that. They knew how Jesus was God. I think they just didn't care about always having to hold our tongues and be, make sure we describe it in the right way. So if you're, if you're struggling with this, like, how do I understand the Trinity? How do I understand the nature of God? Do I describe it like an egg? Do I describe it like water? Well, if I say it this way, somebody's going to get mad at me because I'm, I'm not doing it the right way. <sighs> Take a breath. It is a mystery. The early church understood it as a mystery that was so big that human language can't quite fit it all into the right, proper words, and they didn't feel the pressure to use the exact, right, approved language. So instead, they described mysterious things in mysterious ways. So that's my bit. Um, I think what's sad is is there are Bible translations who are so nervous about this verse that they'll actually untranslate it and they'll make it more theologically consistent. So the word there is form. He existed in the form of God. The NIV will say, Jesus existed in very nature, God. Because they want to take the text and they want it. Ah, this doesn't fit the Trinity very well, so I'm going to just kind of shape it here. The New Living Translation says, though he was God, oh, now we're just completely moving the text out of the way. I think it's admirable because they want to give Jesus all the credit he deserves. But if we look at the text, it says form, it says shape. These are the things that we need to wrestle with as Christians, just to just be comfortable with oh man, that doesn't quite add up in my little finite human brain. Just submit to the text and be comfortable with what the text actually says and move on with it. Okay, he existed in the form of God. Whatever that means, I don't know. He was equal to God, but he didn't find that as something that he wanted to use for his own benefit. Instead, he emptied himself by taking on the form of a slave, by looking like other men, and sharing in their human nature. This verse has all the same theological problems that the previous verse does. So just wrestle with it, take it home, lose some sleep tonight, I don't know. Also, it's a, it's a poem. <laughs> it's a song. Don't press the details. They're trying to make a beautiful poem describing Jesus. Anyway. It says, He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And that word humbled has this really, it's a strong connotation behind it. It's not like, oh, I humbly come down. Jesus, the word means like humiliated. Jesus Christ, equal with God in all of his glory at the right hand of the Father, took on the form of not just a man, but a slave. A servant. 
And he took this low position, not just of a slave, but then he was obedient to death. You go from here to here. And remember, I told you this is a poem. It's a, it's a, it's a song. And what's fascinating is that line, even death on a cross. If you line this verse up in the Greek, it's got these nice little stanzas, like a limerick, you know. There once was a man from Nantucket. It's got this rhythm to it. And that line, even death on a cross, messes up the poetical structure of it. And so what, what people think is that as Paul was writing this poem, he got to this point where it says, obedient to death, to the point of death, Paul adds his little note in there. Not only a man, but a slave, not only a slave, but to death. And Paul's like, yeah, not only death, but death on a cross, a criminal's death. As a result... God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name. He's Lord. If you look in your Bible in your Old Testament, you'll find the word L-O-R-D, Lord, all capital letters, Lord. Um, if you go back to a Hebrew Bible, the word you're going to find there is Y-H-W-H, Yahweh. But there was this tradition in Judaism that the name of God was so holy, so special, so set apart, we're not even going to say it out loud. And so as they were reading the Torah, they would get to the word Yahweh, and instead of saying Yahweh, they would say the word Adonai, which means Lord. That was just the tradition they had. You don't pronounce the name of God. And so this tradition that bled over, that every time you see the name of God, you say Lord instead... It bled over into the Hebrew Bible being translated into Greek, into Latin, and eventually into English, so that even in our Bibles, you don't find the name of God. You find L-O-R-D, all capital letters, Lord. So when we read the word Lord in the New Testament, it's actually the word Lord, because that tradition had carried over. But we should understand that when Jesus is called Lord, when he has the name Lord, what the New Testament authors are doing, what the Spirit is doing through his word is, is kind of putting these two things together and saying, yeah, that, the name of God, the one you can't pronounce that we call Lord, that's Jesus. Which, by the way, I'm still nervous about this, that whole full circle about the describing God Jesus is fully God. It's plain as day in here. He is Lord. He is Yahweh. He is fully God. Jesus Christ comes down to earth, takes the form of, of a man, of a slave, and is obedient to the grave, to death, a criminal's death. He takes this low point, and then God highly exalts him. The word's hyper-exalted. It's the word for exalt with the word hyper in front of it. Like we have hyperspeed. God lifted him up to a point above all names so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Here's what's really cool about that. Every tongue will confess. The way it's written in, in Greek is it's written as direct speech. 
Meaning, if you're imagining this scenario with every creature bowing down before Jesus, you're not supposed to imagine everybody bowing down and then one guy turns to his neighbor and says, hey, Jesus Christ over there is Lord. It's written as direct speech. All eyes fixed on Jesus, every tongue confessing, Jesus Christ, Lord. Every knee, every tongue. He says, on earth, in heaven and on earth and under the earth. I told you all that stuff about Hercules and Rome and stuff. There's a payoff to that. The, the line where he says, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, this is a direct reference to the way the Greeks and the Romans envisioned their lowercase g gods. They believed that there, was, there were three major realms. They believed there was the heavenly realm, where all the heavenly lowercase g gods were. Right There's Jupiter. He's the, the Roman version of Zeus. You had Mars, the god of war. Venus, the god of love. So we get all the names of our planets, by the way. Then there's the earthly realm. That's the, the realm of all the earthly gods. That's the Caesars. That's the realm where all of the, you know, Nero and Caesar, they were gods. And that's where, that's their realm that they ruled. And then you had the under the earth realm, the underworld, where you've got Pluto, which is the Roman version of Hades. All of these under the earth gods. That's how a Roman would think about things. Paul is, this letter here is, is calling out that system and saying, all three of those realms are garbage compared to the one true God. Heracles, Hercules. They believed he was the, the son of, of Jupiter, right? That's Zeus. He was born on earth in the form of a man, but he kind of had this half-God, half-man strength. And he was famous for using his strength and half-God, half-man powers to get whatever he wanted, whenever he wanted. Women, money, fame, victories in war. But he was always just half-God, half-man. He wasn't ever quite as good as the real gods up on Mount Olympus. And so he lived his life as this macho superpower guy and used his power and abilities to serve himself until the point where the human part of him was killed and they say that he ascended to the heavenly realms because finally he had proved just how strong he was to have a spot among the gods. Jesus did the exact opposite. He wasn't just a God. He was equal to the one true God. Not merely half God, half man, but fully equal with God. He didn't act like the legends. He didn't try to serve himself. In fact, he did the exact opposite. He had this position in heaven at the right hand of the Father and came down and was obedient to death in the lowest realms. And then God hyper-exalted him to the highest place of honor. Not just a seat on Mount Olympus to sit next to Zeus and all the other guys, but the one true God. And so every knee will bow to him. Remember the emperor? What you do when the emperor comes by, you bend the knee and you confess. Caesar, hail, you are my Lord. And this poem saying, no. 
not to Zeus, not to Caesar, not to Jupiter, not to Hercules. Every knee will bow. All of your little gods that you find are so awesome, if they're even real, which they're not, they would bow down to Christ. As a, as a quick aside, would somebody be willing to send a message down to Ron and, and bring our kids up? Uh, about a five-minute warning. When you compare this hymn to the context of the church in Philippi, the purpose of this hymn was to proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord in opposition to the Greek and Roman idols, in opposition to Caesar. It was most likely used in Roman areas like Philippi as this quick little poem that was easy to memorize, that you could, you could take and you could memorize this little poem and then repeat as an evangelism tool. Oh yeah, you think Jupiter's so great? Well, my God, Jesus, even though he existed in the form of God, you know, and then you repeat the little poem. It was something that could be repeated in the church so that when visitors came, they could have a really concise idea of who this Jesus guy's all about. And there's a theory, and this is the grain of salt here, take this theory. There's a theory that this hymn, not only did it originate in a Roman context, but that it originated in the church in Philippi. As if when Epaphroditus came with the letter, he was like, hey Paul, check out this neat little poem that we wrote. What do you think? And if that's true, then it, and again, it's a theory, there's no way to prove this, but if that's true, that would mean what we're reading here is Paul is, is kind of giving them the nod. He's taken their own work that they wrote and he's writing it back to them saying, yeah, good job, kid. And he's using their words in the context of teaching them unity. All right, let's, let's bring the plane back in. Let's look at this now in Paul's context. In the letter of Philippians, Paul's telling the church, the end of chapter one, stand firm, be united, don't bend the knee to your opponents. And he's telling them the way you're going to display this unity that you need is through humility. And he uses their own poem to prove the point, which is so beautiful. What kind of humility should you be displaying? Well, it should look a lot like our Lord. He was in heaven in full form and full equality with the Father, and he stepped down off the throne and became a slave and was humiliated, obedient to the point of death. And then Paul even adds in a little note there, not just any death, a criminal's death. That's the standard for the type of humility we should describe each other. And if we're reading the book carefully, it's at this point that you should realize that Paul has been framing up the entire book, the entire letter, to wrap around this poem. What's Paul call himself at the very beginning of the letter? Paul and Timothy, slaves of Christ. When he talks about his stay in prison, what's he do? He displays his willingness to be obedient to death, to exalt Christ, no matter what, whether he lives or dies. I just want to be obedient to Christ and exalt him, whether I live or die. Later on in, in chapter 3, Paul's going to say, Be imitators of me, brothers and sisters, and watch carefully those who are living this way. There's other places in Scripture where Paul will say, Imitate me as I imitate Christ. But here in Philippians, he kind of just 
lays out all the evidence for you and expects you to pick it up. When he says, be imitators of me, and then you look at what he's saying, and then you realize, oh man, he's imitating Christ. We have, we have a lot of Caesars in this culture in our world who want us to bow down to them. We have a lot of idols around us that can get into our lives and cause us disunity and lead us astray. And we have a choice. We can try to be like Hercules and use our own strength and our own power to bend the world to our will, to our own selfish ambitions and do what we want. We can be like Emperor Nero and force everyone to bend the knee to us to get what we want. Or we can imitate Christ. We can humble ourselves. We can put others above ourselves and imitate the example we have in Christ. And here's the deal. No matter which of those two options you choose, eventually you will bend the knee to Christ. No matter whether you serve yourself now or later, you will confess, Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul urges us here, if we want unity in the church, if we want to be united, bend the knee now. Follow the head of the church. Put yourself low and express unity through humility. Follow Christ. Bend the knee and confess that he is Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just can't express how grateful we are. We cannot express in words big enough to describe how grateful we are for your son, for the gospel, and we just ask that you would help us to be united in him to bend the knee to him, to confess to him. Don't allow us to bend the knee to Caesar or our sin or the culture. God, we bow before you. We bend the knee to your son, Jesus. We confess him as Lord and him alone. It's in Jesus' precious name that we pray. Amen.